Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. What we know about Alexei Navalny's sudden death in a Russian prison. The opposition leader's family saying they're denied access to his body. This just weeks before the country's next election. Alexei Navalny's widow vows to continue her husband's work in a YouTube video that's now gone viral. Trump had a full calendar over the weekend, appealing, appearing at the self-build greatest sneaker show on earth in Philly before heading over to Michigan. Find out how some trackers have banded together to protest the fine against him. Senator J.D. Vance remarks that Europeans say Vladimir Putin is an existential threat, but don't act like it with their defense spending. Hear why the senator thinks Europe needs to be more self-sufficient. A massive sandstorm turns the sky of northwest China orange, affecting cities in the Xinjiang region. See more footage of the powerful winds. Hundreds of lanterns filling up the night sky in Taiwan. How people there are celebrating the traditional lantern festival and the year of the dragon. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb. I'm sitting in for Chris Beers. And good to have you with us, David. Top of the story today, of the show today, blame for the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny poured out over the weekend. The 47-year-old's sudden death at a remote Arctic prison on Friday comes less than a month before an election that will give President Vladimir Putin another six years in power. Protests in Russia were dispersed with police arresting hundreds and taking away tributes. Members of Navalny's anti-corruption campaign are accusing Russia of hiding the politician's body and covering up the cause of his sudden death. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on reactions to Navalny's death. Tributes to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny were broken up over the weekend and flowers and candles thrown away. Rights group OVD Info says more than 400 people have been arrested so far in over 30 Russian cities, most in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Protests also popped up in cities like London, Paris and Barcelona. Our freedom is also dead. I mean, that's what it means for me. Prison officials told Navalny's mother he died from sudden death syndrome, a term that could involve a wide range of scenarios, resulting in unforeseen sudden death. Navalny's spokeswoman on Saturday confirmed his death, claiming he had been murdered. She says a cause of death has not been determined, and the family doesn't know where the body is. We demand uh, that Russian authorities immediately uh, give Alexei's body to his family. Russian officials told them results of a new investigation would be released this week. President Biden Sunday said he believes Putin is responsible, but hasn't had that confirmed. Whether he ordered or not, he is responsible for the circumstances to put that man in. And he is it's a reflection of who he is. And it just cannot be tolerated. Biden on Friday blamed Putin and stressed funding to Ukraine. Putin is responsible. What has happened in Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled. Britain Saturday promised consequences for Russia, but did not say what kind of actions it would take. Navalny was serving a three-decade sentence on extremism and fraud charges that he denied. His death comes as Putin prepares for next month's presidential election, set to keep the Russian leader in power until 2030. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And Navalny's widow speaks out in a new nine-minute YouTube video, which has garnered over two million views. She vows to continue her husband's work. 
Why would he sacrifice himself in this way? After all, he could have lived a normal life with his family, not talking, not investigating, not speaking, and not fighting. But he could not do that. Alexei loved Russia more than anything else in the world. He loved our country, he loved you. He believed in us, in our strength, in our future, and in the fact that we deserve the best. Yulia Navalyana accuses Putin of killing her husband. She says Putin had him tortured in prison for three years, trapped in a concrete box only slightly larger than a king-size bed. She says the room had nothing but a stool, a sink, and a hole in the floor instead of a toilet. She also says she knows why her husband was killed and will reveal that to the public soon. Navalny attended a meeting in Brussels today with European Union foreign ministers. The leaders expressed their condolences and pledged their support for Russian opposition. And here to speak with me about this is Gerard Felidi, a civil and human rights attorney and senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. Gerard, welcome. A rights group is saying that more than 400 people have been detained at memorial events for Navalny across Russia. Tell us about the current state of freedom for expression, free, freedom of expression in Russia. Well, Russian freedom of expression has not really existed since Putin took power. And in fact, it's a rarity in Russia at all. It is uh, what is still now an essentially autocratic country where rights are very limited. And when you express positions that are contrary to the wishes of the government, there is repression, there are crackdowns. You have to be careful what you say because of consequences. We see this with Navalny. We see this with other opposition leaders. Uh, anything that is said needs to be essentially uh, in line with the government's position or else there is a risk of arrest and imprisonment. And so given what you're saying, what should we look out for in terms of the Kremlin's response to Navalny's death and Russians gathering for memorials? The, the Kremlin's response is going to be very much along the lines that this is an internal domestic matter for Russia and it is not for the international community to judge or get involved in what happened. What we can expect for them to do domestically is more crackdowns. Uh, there will be statements that the, there will be a perfunctory investigation into how Navalny died. Uh, they will likely conclude that this was some kind of an accident or that he had some pre-existing medical condition, even though reports are indicating that his body was bruised and there are other indicators of uh, traumatic death. But there will be a perfunctory investigation. The authorities will crack down on any large-scale gatherings, and the country will try to move on. The, the government will try to put uh, other issues on the domestic agenda to ignore what happened. Now, Putin recently said that he prefers Biden in a potential matchup with Trump. Yet Biden's rhetoric regarding Putin is harsher, most recently calling Putin a thug in response to Navalny's death. Could you speak to the dynamics that are at play here? Well, from the perspective of the Russians, they like stability, they like continuity. The most important thing they look for in foreign leaders is predictability. And for them, Biden is predictable. They know how he will respond to any given set of circumstances. They've known this because he was vice president for eight years. He was in the Senate for, for decades. Biden is a known entity. So, of course, Russia prefers him because they can anticipate how he will respond to something and they can adjust their strategy accordingly. It's not that they think he's better for Russia uh, in a, as a partner, but rather he is more predictable and therefore Russia can take better advantage of him. From Biden's position, he has been strong and, and, and very much calling out and condemning Russian aggression and is continuing to do so after Navalny's death. And finally, it was announced Saturday that the U.S. is transferring nearly $500,000 in confiscated Russian funds to Estonia to support Ukraine. This is the first time the U.S. will transfer funds to a foreign ally for the explicit purpose of assisting Ukraine. 
How could this kind of move change the U.S.'s approach to foreign aid and dynamics in the region? There's always a way to, to looking at this for the U.S. government to try to stimulate the uh, the aid that's going to Ukraine and to stand against Russia, as we're seeing increasing Russian aggression. This is in many ways reminiscent of lend-lease what we did in World War II, which is to support countries in Europe in, in order to build up their militaries and provide assistance to one another, even before we were involved in a war. So seeing this transfer of money is essentially a way that the United States is looking creatively to help Ukraine and these countries develop the capability to fight back against Russian aggression without us getting directly involved. All right. Gerard Fraliti, civil and human rights attorney and senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. Ari's great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Coming up, a truck driver sharing on X that he and a group of other truckers will refuse to make any deliveries to New York City. How the boycott is connected to former President Trump. The remains of five late-term abortions are at the center of a complex case. The Justice Department recently ordered their destruction, but the fate of several pro-life protesters hang in the balance. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. had a busy weekend after the New York ruling, speaking at two events on Saturday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the highlights. And I'm proud to be an American. The former president began a Michigan rally by calling the judge's decision a lawless, unconstitutional atrocity that sets fire to the nation's laws. You talk about democracy. This is a real threat to democracy and restoring fair, equal and impartial justice in America. We have to have that because we don't have that now. Trump was speaking to a crowd that overflowed an airport hangar northwest of Detroit. I'm thrilled to be back in the American heartland. This is the heartland with the proud, hardworking patriots who made this country run. The Republican frontrunner for the presidential nomination has accused Democrats of election interference in the form of multiple civil and criminal cases against him. Earlier in the day, the former president introduced his new Trump-branded sneakers at SneakerCon in Philadelphia. The event bills itself as the greatest sneaker show on earth. We have a few young ladies that are up here crying. Look at you with the Trump 2024. Thank you, darling. I love you too. Wow. A lot of emotion. There's a lot of emotion in this room. The gold high tops with an American flag detail on the back are being sold as the Never Surrender High Tops. Roman Sharp from Philadelphia said he was happy to pay $9,000 in an auction for the sneakers signed by Trump, saying he wasn't going to stop bidding until he won. Mr. President, I'm the one that won your signed sneakers here at SneakerCon in Philadelphia. I was very, very extremely happy to see you, see your face, see you speak to the crowd. Trump supporters at SneakerCon shared their feelings about the former president and the 2024 election. Because America's fed up from all the corruption, the open border, the crime, all the endless wars and, and the money that's going out the doors. Washington is a swamp. Oh, I think Trump wins automatically. I think people are awake now and people realize that there's been a lot of lies in the past. People are seeing the truth now. Man, I just admire that man up there. I just like, ever since I was young, like, he's been my hero. And I just like, 
I was shaking in my boots over here. I was sweating. I couldn't even believe it, man. I just saw him on stage and I actually burst into tears. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley lashed out at Trump on Sunday while campaigning in South Carolina ahead of the state's primary election. The former governor brought up Trump's legal woes and told those in attendance that chaos follows him. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump with an over 30-point lead against Haley in her home state of South Carolina. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The wife of investor Grant Cordon has started a GoFundMe page to help cover Trump's legal expenses after the New York verdict. It's raised over $438,000 as of this morning. Continuing with the former president, a group of truck drivers are refusing to drive to New York City to show their solidarity with, the, with him. They're protesting the verdict in the civil fraud trial. A trucker known as Chicago Ray shared a video Saturday on X saying truckers overwhelmingly support Trump. He said he'd spoken to about 10 drivers so far who won't deliver loads to the Big Apple. The ex-user says people are tired of those on the left interfering with the former president and called it election interference. The post has over 7 million views and was reposted by Trump on Truth Social. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley said yesterday it's a mistake that the Republican Party has, in her words, ignored Gen Z voters. Haley made the comment at a Fox News town hall in South Carolina ahead of the state's February 24th primary. And recently a poll came out, this should shock everybody, that 58% of Gen Zers are not planning on voting in this election. And the only reason people don't vote is when they think no one's listening. And that's a problem. I, on the other hand, think y'all are going to be the generation that saves us. You know exactly what you're doing. They think very differently. They don't care as much about money, but they care about being something bigger than themselves. They want to be a part of something. They care about the environment. We need to listen to them when they're talking about that. They don't want this government debt that's been pushed down on them. They don't want to see wars happen. And they want to know that they're going to be able to afford a home and get a job like anyone else. Haley also mentioned a statistic she's often noted on the campaign trail that the GOP has lost seven of the past eight popular votes for president. The town hall's moderator noted that President Biden's campaign has been using TikTok to appeal to Gen Z voters. Haley said Republicans shouldn't use the China-linked app that's banned on federal devices. The candidate went on to cite the dangers behind the app, such as it allows Beijing to access your finances and contacts. Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips announced on Friday evening that his campaign is laying off a substantial number of staff due to financial challenges. However, Phillips did not make any mention of withdrawing from the presidential race. I'm not giving up. I'm going to continue. I am on ballots in 43 states. Our country is desperate for change. We can be hopeful again. We can be optimistic again. And we can celebrate America again. But we got to do it together. So if you still believe that change is possible and you still believe that we can do better, please consider investing in our campaign. Phillips thanked his staffers, describing them as amazing people who gave up a lot to join his campaign. In January, billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman declared his endorsement of Phillips. He pledged $1 million to a super PAC that supports the Minnesota congressman. Ackman described Phillips as someone who would make a truly outstanding president of the United States. 
The announcement comes on the heels of fellow Democratic candidate Marianne Williamson's decision to suspend her campaign earlier this month. And controversy surrounding the remains of five babies called the DC-5. Attorneys from the Thomas More Society say the Department of Justice has ordered their destruction, which the medical examiner's office in Washington informed them of. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the case. The whole case started with allegations against the Sergi Clinic in Washington, D.C. On its website, it advertises abortions for 27-plus weeks of pregnancy. The Washington Post reported that a doctor at the clinic, Dr. Santangelo, was the subject of an undercover video in 2013 about what the clinic would do if an abortion resulted in a live birth. Obviously, you're here for a certain procedure, and if, if your, your pregnancy were, let's say you went into labor, the membrane's ruptured, and you delivered before we got to the termination part of the procedure here, you know, then we would do things, we, we, would, we would not help it. Santangelo later told the Washington Post he just wanted to reassure the woman and that he would actually call 911. Members of the pro-life group Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising saw the undercover video and did a sit-in protest at the clinic in 2020. Reverend Pat Mahoney says the same group went to the clinic in 2022 to offer women support and encourage them to keep their children. Suddenly, a person came out of the clinic with a medical working for a medical waste company with a large drum. They instinctively knew right away what was in that drum, and they told him that, and shockingly, he gave the drum to them. They brought it back home and discovered over 100 aborted children in that drum, and five of them were very late term. The women asked police to take the babies, have an autopsy performed, and learn if they were legally or illegally aborted. The same day the police picked up the remains of the five babies, the FBI arrested Lauren Handy and others for the 2020 abortion clinic protest. They were later convicted in 2023 and face 11 years in prison. Thomas More attorney Erin Mercino says evidence that the babies were victims of illegal late-term abortions could possibly be used in an appeal. I think that that's what would be argued, um, would be that they were trying to prevent some sort of course of activity or illegal activity that was taking place. Every defendant deserves to have every right protected. And, and so if it is an argument that could be made, even if there's a low likelihood of success, then fair process, it should be allowed to be made. Reverend Mahoney says he and his wife, Katie, put in a petition to seek receivership of the five babies. Since they had not been claimed that we would take these bodies <clears throat> to ensure they received a proper and honorable burial. Several members of Congress and pro-life leaders held a press conference in front of the Capitol last week. They said that the five babies' remains suggest that they may have been killed via an abortion method known as partial birth abortion, which is banned nationally under federal law. They are calling for autopsies and a full investigation. Neither the DOJ nor the medical examiner's office responded to requests for comment. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And shifting to the west, flood watches are issued across much of the California coast as another round of heavy rain looms. The first round of rain arrived Saturday evening across central California. Santa Barbara County officials say heavy rainfall is forecasted from Sunday evening through Wednesday. 
Emergency management officials issued evacuation orders for areas at risk of flooding and landslides. The National Weather Service says the stronger storm will also bring gusty winds, lower temperatures and high elevation snow. Winter storm warnings are in effect for the Sierra, the Southern Cascades and the Greater Lake Tahoe area. Governor Gavin Newsom has officially activated the State Operations Center and that's to help coordinate a statewide response to the severe weather. After the break, President Biden and Senate Leader Chuck Schumer call on House Republicans to pass the foreign aid bill with $60 billion earmarked for Ukraine after Ukraine loses a key position on its eastern front. And the European Union launches an investigation into TikTok, the popular video app. What Europeans find concerning in the content aimed at minors? We'll have the details when we return. A recent bill has been passed by the House of Representatives to reverse President Joe Biden's pause on U.S. exports of liquefied natural gas, also known as LNG. Does the bill have a chance of passing the Senate? And what does the pause on LNG mean for everyday Americans? Entity's Don Ma talks to a reporter to find some answers. All right, now joining us is Jackson Richmond. He's a reporter for the Epoch Times. So, Jackson, I wanted to ask you, recently the House passed a bill reversing uh, Biden's LNG pause. To start off, what does this bill do? Thanks for having me on, Don, and good morning. This bill, introduced by Texas Congressman Austin Pfluger, would reverse the Biden administration's pause on LNG export approvals to countries that do not have a free trade agreement with the United States. For example, the United Kingdom does not have a free trade agreement with the United States. Ditto the European Union. And would you explain uh, a little bit further of what actually is the significance here of this bill? The significance of this bill is to send a message to the Biden administration that Biden has declared a war on American energy, as the House GOP has put it. And uh, does this bill have any chance of passing the Senate, do you think? No, Don, it has no chance of passing the Senate, which is controlled by the Democrats. So then, uh, what is the Biden administration's stance on the bill? The Biden administration has come out against the bill, citing numerous reasons, one of them being that it would allow for the exportation of LNG to countries that do not have a free trade agreement with the United States. It cited other reasons as well, one of them being environmental, though it's important to note that LNG produces 40% less CO2 than coal and 30% less than oil. And uh, earlier you mentioned that the Biden administration has uh, declared war. Uh, what, what did you mean by that? Well, as the House GOP has put it, the Biden administration has really undermined American energy independence. And a lot of people are upset over that as it has resulted in higher gas and energy prices. Now, is this pause on LNG going to have a huge impact uh, in, in the overall picture here, do you think? Very likely, Don. And w would you like to elaborate on those uh, impacts uh, specifically as it relates to, uh, for example, regular Americans, uh, for example, like you and me? For example, it likely will cause an increase in heating prices, 
you know, we're in the winter, so heat is an essential source of energy for many, if not all, American households. And would that be a substantial increase or it, would it be something that uh, is negligible? It most likely would be a significant increase. And it's worth noting, Don, that LNG is the cleanest form of energy. All right. Thank you very much for your time today, Jackson. Thank you so much, Don. Greatly appreciate it. A growing number of companies are urging workers to return to the office as pandemic policies are phased out. How are the changes impacting both employers and employees? To get more insight on this, earlier I spoke with Dan Schaubel, an author, expert on future of work, and a managing partner at Workplace Intelligence. Dan, thank you for joining us. Now, why have people shifted their working habits long-term, even though through the pandemic it was short-term? Well, during the pandemic, when people were asked to work remotely who could, obviously there are a subset of workers, about half of the U.S. economy that has to work in you know, warehouses or pharmacies or supermarkets. But for knowledge workers, who I call like, who are spending the majority of their time on a computer or with access to a computer, they upended their life to relocate to, for instance, a lot of millennials, 80 million millennials in the U.S., to a house. That's part of why it's really hard to get a house right now is because there's so many millennials who had bought houses and had moved there and then uh, had children. And now there's a lot of disruption because companies want them back part-time or especially with financial services companies in major cities like New York, potentially full-time. And you know, every single day you hear about another company that is mandating three, four, maybe even five days back at work. And these workers have already relocated and have roots in certain areas and are less likely to want to come back. And now companies are saying, hey, you gotta, you got to come back to the office. And in, many, in some cases, they're unable to do that. So they have to look for another job. Ryan, I know people like the flexibility. So tell us, are companies generally sympathetic to their employees' new lifestyles when they ask them to return to the office? It's really mixed. You have some companies that are more supportive than others. Uh, I call hybrid working the truce between employers and employees because it's kind of the best of both worlds with regard to many jobs, right? So you get the freedom and flexibility to work independently, to have a few days where you can you know, manage your personal life, let's say you have children, or you wanna do personal related activities during the day or structure your day how you'd like, whereas you have other time in the office where you're interacting with coworkers, and brainstorm sessions, coming up with new innovations, uh, socializing, connecting with you know, leadership so you can get ahead at work because there's proximity bias. So hybrid's working for over half of all jobs right now, and fewer than 20% of jobs are fully remote. When it comes to company contracts, who ultimately has the rights here, the employers or the employees? The employers have the right to force employees back into the office, but they could lose employees to their competitors or other industries, so that, that could be an issue. Um, employees, you know, especially in this economy where it's harder to get a job with more layoffs, um, you know, are, are more likely to do as the company wants because they want to keep their job, right? So it's extremely competitive. And now it's about the great stay. It's about job security. Yeah, in terms of job security, we know companies are doing mass layoffs and restructuring at the moment. So when it comes to terminating employees, 
How does remote versus in-person change this dynamic? It changes it significantly. I mean, the biggest thing that's happened in the past month is that employees who are getting laid off at home are recording that layoff and talking about it on social media, which in effect hurts the corporate brand because of maybe the nature and, and manner in which that layoff happened, right? It lacked empathy, it lacked humanity. Um, but it also, in a sense, hurts the person sharing it because now other companies are not gonna wanna hire a person who would do that. So to me, that's like one of the biggest things that's come out of remote layoffs. All right, Dan Shawbell, Future of Work expert and managing partner at Workplace Intelligence, where you can find workplace research and trends on workplaceintelligence.com. Thank you so much for your time. Happy to be here. President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are demanding that House Republicans pass the $95 billion foreign aid bill. Biden spoke with Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky over the weekend, linking Ukraine's withdrawal from a key city to Congress's inability to act. The White House says the withdrawal was forced by ammunition having to be rationed. Senator Schumer, in a call for action yesterday, called the unclear and sudden death of Putin's political enemy Alexei Navalny an urgent alarm bell. Biden has criticized House lawmakers for taking a two-week break, calling it outrageous. Here's the president yesterday. Look, the Ukrainian people fought so bravely and heroically. They put so much on the line. And the idea that now, when they're running out of ammunition, we walk away, I find it absurd. I find it unethical. I find it just contrary to everything we are as a country. Zelensky hinted at the House recess on Saturday, stating, please remember that dictators do not go on vacation. Senator Schumer stated, Putin is watching, and nothing would make him happier than to see Congress waver in its support for Ukraine. And House Speaker Mike Johnson and others in the GOP have issues with the bill. Many feel it lacks provisions for border security amid record-breaking high numbers of illegal crossings. Schumer on X posted that the bill is, quote, sitting on Speaker Johnson's desk while Putin waits to see if the U.S. will act. Senator J.D. Vance is calling on Europe to become more self-sufficient in military matters. Republican from Ohio says the U.S. is focused more on East Asia and can't be expected to cover what he called a disproportionate share of the burden. Entity's Daniel Monaghan has more on that and the perspective of some top European officials on defense spending. Senator Vance made the comments at an international security conference in Germany on Sunday. He says the U.S. is desperately trying to get its European allies to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. Most of them have now met that threshold, but only barely. Uh, so if, if Vladimir Putin is an existential threat to Europe, it doesn't seem like the Europeans are acting like that. On the war in Ukraine, Vance has a pessimistic view of the country's ability to effectively change the war's course and fulfill its aims. This is going to end in a negotiated settlement of some, some type. I think American policy and American diplomacy should be trying to bring that about as quickly as possible. Vance says the U.S. doesn't manufacture enough weapons and that critical systems like the Patriot missile and Javelin system are in very short supply. According to the senator, even if the Ukrainian aid package passes the House, which he sees as 50-50, he doesn't believe the money will help due to the ammunition shortages. Over in Lithuania, the country's foreign minister over the weekend called for increased NATO spending. 
The official warned that former President Trump's comments were a clear signal that Europe must do more, and added that Lithuania has reached nearly 2.8% of GDP toward defense spending. We currently have a debate in Lithuania where, whether we should go even beyond that. We're doing our part as well. We're not freeloading. Some European governments had strongly criticized Trump for his warning that as president, he won't defend countries that don't spend enough on their defense against a Russian attack. In Germany, Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said on Saturday that Berlin may need to spend more than the required amount to deter Moscow in the coming years. Effective deterrence is our life insurance. He says Germany doesn't know where it'll find the money yet, but it must. We can discuss about spending for social issues, for education, for digitalization, for infrastructure and whatever else, but without security, without freedom, insecurity, without secure freedom, everything else is nothing. Germany announced last week that it met the 2% NATO alliance target for the first time since the end of the Cold War. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And staying in Europe, here are some short headlines from Germany, France and other countries. The European Union is investigating TikTok. The EU industry chief posted on X that they suspect TikTok is breaching transparency agreements and not upholding obligations to protect minors. Key concerns include addictive design and the algorithm funneling viewers to more extreme content, as well as potentially inadequate age verification and default privacy settings. TikTok's parent company could face fines of up to 6% of global revenue if found guilty of breaching EU rules. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is seeking a second five-year term. It's one of the most powerful positions in the European Union. This would make her Europe's most prominent politician in over a generation. As president of the commission, von der Leyen has the power to set the commission's policy agenda. She determines the legislative proposals that could become EU laws. The former physician and mother of seven has led the EU through COVID-19, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the Israel-Hamas war. She's been a staunch supporter of Israel. Early on, she made a climate change as a focus, but recently acknowledged the political mood has shifted in Europe. She has appeared to side with farmers in their protests against green regulations. American Troy Bowling confessed today to charges of murder and rape after allegedly pushing two women down a ravine in Germany. Prosecutors say the defendant met the two American female tourists by chance on a hiking path and lured them off the trail. He allegedly pushed one woman down the ravine for trying to stop the attack and raped the other woman before also pushing her down the ravine. The rape victim died. The surviving woman sustained serious injuries. Prosecutors say they also secured a laptop and cell phones from bowling containing child pornography. If convicted, bowling faces life imprisonment. And in France, the Eiffel Tower is closed due to a strike. A sign on the landmark says, we apologize. The tower is working. Workers aren't demanding the usual better pay. Instead, they want Paris to review its finances. The city of Paris is responsible for Eiffel Tower operations. The workers say it's underestimating maintenance costs and overestimating ticket sales. They argue the maintenance may not be done as well as it should be in time for the Olympics, and it's overburdening employees. This is the second strike in two months, and tourists are disappointed. The Eiffel Tower is the most visited site in France. It welcomes over six million tourists every year. We were here in our honeymoon, and the idea was to come to France 15 years after that with 
our children to visit the same, the exactly same place to show to our kids, and you cannot make it today. So definitely, it's disappointing. Real shame, really, because yeah, say we come just for three days and we are not going to be able to get out. <laughs> and next, we have some updates from China. A sandstorm sweeping parts of northwest China over the weekend, including cities in the Xinjiang region. In a video posted on social media on Saturday, travelers at a train station in Tamshuk found themselves immersed in a rust-colored landscape. Local officials issued a warning saying visibility in the city was less than 160 feet and banned vehicles from traveling on some roads. Images posted online show cars with broken windows, possibly shattered by strong winds. That's as another part of Xinjiang was hit by a snowstorm. More than 40,000 tourists were stranded over the weekend. And after the break, a seasonal pastry inspires bakers across Denmark. Some offer classics while others get creative. See the playful takes on this jam and cream-filled bun. And a Chinese New Year celebration in upstate New York showcases classical Chinese dance and music to ring in the Year of the Dragon. More shortly here on NTD News Today. A cream and jam-filled bun, traditionally baked before the start of Lent, has inspired bakers across Denmark. Some offer classics while others get creative. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the Danish pastry. In Denmark, most seasons have a bread or cake associated with them, but the cream and jam-filled Fasselandsboller garners the most hype. Fasseland took place this past Sunday before the start of Lent, and it's similar to Carnival or Mardi Gras. People was walking around the the streets and uh, you know the 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 what do you say the goal was to pick up some Fastlandspola and uh, to taste and uh, rate them. Founded in 1870, Conditori Glace is thought to be Denmark's oldest pastry shop. Fastelon is one of its busiest times of year. We're doing around a thousand every day and uh, it will uh, culminate this weekend because we have the fast launch weekend. So, uh, so it's cr uh, quite uh, crazy. This year, baker Lars Jewel has whipped up three varieties featuring apricot, apple and plum fillings. Some Danish bakers are adding their own creative flair to the traditional pastry. Everybody is doing uh, uh, very uh, innovative things with yuzu and tonga and uh, uh, you know, uh, calamansi and uh, stuff like this. And we took it back home to the traditional way to do it. That burst of creativity is on display at one of Copenhagen's most trendy bakeries. Emil Glazer, former chef at Michelin star restaurant Noma, opened Juno the bakery in 2017. And we wanted to do it, uh, we wanted to do something that was playful. Uh, and I had the team uh, basically uh, take on any kind of uh, childhood memory that they had uh, from eating carnival pastries. And, uh, and we ended up doing something with banana. The bakery is best known for its cardamom buns, but Glazer says they decided to attempt their first Fastelandsballer last year. The result was a banana-filled caramelized brioche with vanilla custard. This year for Fasteland, Juno chefs also came up with a blackcurrant jam-filled brioche with whipped vanilla cream. Glazer says the creative endeavors have been positive for the traditional pastry. And I think it's just been uh, an organic process in the sense that someone starts and then 
others others take on and do their take, and uh, and it's just grown to to something great now. Gaines celebrated Faustilan this past Sunday, February 11th. Lent begins February 14th and lasts until March 28th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And many people are focused on living well these days, but what about dying well? While many of us want to avoid such a morbid topic if possible, it's important to plan ahead to ensure your, your final days are filled with clarity and peace. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Death is inevitable for all of us, although we may try to ignore it. Sometimes our family members will even push us to get grueling surgeries late in our days. The aim to stave off our eventual passage to that next chapter. But if death is inevitable, there must be a way to face it without fear or regret. Many Americans make a will. Fewer create any form of advanced care planning for medical care. Those facing terminal diseases may find assistance facing their end. They may also enter hospice care, or they may recruit a death dollar to help them navigate the dying process. Death dollars are also known as death midwives. They can provide emotional counseling, patient and family comfort, and memorial service planning. But for many, death comes as an afterthought until it becomes the only thought. But it's important to consider issues you want to resolve, regrets you want to address, and important final words. Charlene Lucas is a nurse and freelance writer for the Epoch Times newspaper. She is seen dying up close. Here are her six key lessons that can bring urgent clarity in our final days. Number one, avoid spiritual anguish by finding meaning in your life. It's never too early to start. A good death is about living your final days well. That makes it much easier to find calm and acceptance as the end arrives. Number two, talk about death. People around you may push for aggressive medical care you don't want. It may be your responsibility to turn the conversation toward how you want to spend your final months. Number three, take care of practical matters. These can include medical directives for advanced care planning, a will, or personalized funeral arrangements. Number four, consider palliative care. This is specialized medical care that keeps you living your best life amid sickness. It includes physical, emotional, and spiritual support at any stage of serious illness. Number five, learn what dying looks like. The body knows how to release the spirit. Most people who die naturally have a calm and contented exit that includes a lack of hunger, thirst, and a gradual cessation of bodily function. And finally, number six, find peace. In our final weeks and hours, four critical sentiments and statements become of utmost importance. Please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. These crucial sentiments aren't just for our final moments, however. One might say these are sentiments a wise man or woman expresses throughout their days. And now to some festive news. The Mount Hope Chinese Association held its Chinese New Year celebration this past weekend. The event showcased dozens of performances in classical Chinese dance and music. Let's take a look. celebration was hosted in Otisville, New York on February 17th and 18th, featuring more than 40 performances from over 10 different groups. 
The performers showcase traditional Chinese culture, including lion dancing and classical Chinese dance and music. It's a fantastic day celebrating the Chinese New Year, learning about new cultures, experiencing different foods, and seeing the wonderful dancers and music. Carl Brabenek, the New York State House Minority Whip, was in attendance. Thank you for inviting me. Congratulations to all the beautiful dancers and all the wonderful performances that all of you are performing today. It's absolutely great. It's second year of celebrations hosted by the Mount Hope Chinese Association, this time ringing in the Year of the Dragon. Over in Taiwan, a colorful event to celebrate the Lantern Festival and the Chinese New Year. Hundreds of paper lanterns floated into the night sky. The Sky Lantern Festival began in 1999 in a mountainous district of New Taipei. It marks the end of the New Year celebrations. Participants write their wishes for the New Year on the lanterns. It could be as personal as a smooth love life to more serious topics such as peace for countries at war. I want my friends and family to be healthy and I want the world to be peaceful. And then my own love life also has to go smoothly as well. In fact, I wrote on the Sky Lantern, be brave and believe. That is to say, I hope that when I encounter challenges in my new job, I can keep my original intention and then face the new challenges well. The Sky Lantern Festival attracted thousands of visitors from Asia and around the world. The festival was held for the 26th time this year. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. U.S. forces struck an unmanned underwater vessel controlled by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. They say it's their first time seeing this kind of vessel being used by the terrorist group. Palestinian leaders asking the United Nations top court to declare Israel's occupation of West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem illegal. Hearings on the matter will last six days. Alexei Navalny's widow vows to continue her husband's work in a YouTube video that's now gone viral. A truck driver shares a post on X that goes viral that he and other fellow truck drivers are refusing to make any deliveries to New York City. Hear how that's connected to former President Donald Trump. A massive sandstorm turns the sky of northwest China orange, affecting cities in the Xinjiang region. See more footage of the powerful winds. And in college basketball, the NCAA releases their bracket preview nearly a month before the tournament even starts. And today's Dave Martin joins us to explain. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb. I'm sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, blame for the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny poured out over the weekend. The 47-year-old's sudden death at a remote Arctic prison on Friday comes less than a month before an election that'll give President Vladimir Putin 
another six years in power. Protests in Russia were dispersed, with police arresting hundreds and taking away tributes. Members of Navalny's anti-corruption campaign are accusing Russia of hiding the politician's body and covering up the cause of his sudden death. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on reactions to Navalny's death. Tributes to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny were broken up over the weekend and flowers and candles thrown away. Rights group OVD Info says more than 400 people have been arrested so far in over 30 Russian cities, most in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Protests also popped up in cities like London, Paris and Barcelona. Our freedom is also dead. I mean, that's what it means for me. Prison officials told Navalny's mother he died from sudden death syndrome, a term that could involve a wide range of scenarios, resulting in unforeseen sudden death. Navalny's spokeswoman on Saturday confirmed his death, claiming he had been murdered. She says a cause of death has not been determined and the family doesn't know where the body is. We demand uh, that Russian authorities immediately uh, give Alexei's body to his family. Russian officials told them results of a new investigation would be released this week. President Biden Sunday said he believes Putin is responsible, but hasn't had that confirmed. Whether he ordered or not, he is responsible for the circumstances to put that man in. And he is reflection of who he is, and it just cannot be tolerated. Biden on Friday blamed Putin and stressed funding to Ukraine. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled. Britain Saturday promised consequences for Russia, but did not say what kind of actions it would take. Navalny was serving a three-decade sentence on extremism and fraud charges that he denied. His death comes as Putin prepares for next month's presidential election, set to keep the Russian leader in power until 2030. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Navalny's widow speaks out in a new nine-minute YouTube video, which has garnered over two million views. She vows to continue her husband's work. Why would he sacrifice himself in this way? After all, he could have lived a normal life with his family, not talking, not investigating, not speaking, and not fighting. But he could not do that. Alexei loved Russia more than anything else in the world. He loved our country. He loved you. He believed in us, in our strength, in our future, and in the fact that we deserve the best. Yulia Navalnya accuses Putin of killing her husband. She says Putin had him tortured in prison for three years, trapped in a concrete box only slightly larger than a king-sized bed. She says the room had nothing but a stool, a sink, and a hole in the floor instead of a toilet. She also says she knows why her husband was killed and will reveal that to the public soon. Navalny attended a meeting in Brussels today with European Union foreign ministers. The leaders expressed their condolences and pledged their support for Russian opposition. And the U.S. on Saturday conducted strikes against Houthi anti-ship cruise missiles and vessels, including an underwater vessel in the Red Sea. According to Central Command, it's the first time U.S. forces observed an unmanned underwater vessel used by the Houthis. It marks a new strategy for the Iran-backed terrorist group. Houthi forces have been attacking commercial shipping in the Red Sea since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, sparking fears of a wider regional conflict. The attacks have forced thousands of ships to divert from one of the most important maritime trade routes, causing global delays. Last month, the U.S. and its allies began a series of retaliatory strikes against the Houthis. And here, live with us to discuss the latest in the Israel-Hamas war is CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief for Jewish News Syndicate, 
Alex Trayman. Alex, welcome. Good to have you with us. Now, Thank the Israeli, you so much for having me. Yeah, great to, great to have you here. And I just want to begin with the Israeli military saying that it arrested 100 terrorist suspects and found weapons all inside a hospital in Gaza. This kind of speaks to the complex nature of minimizing um, civilian casualties, does it not? Well, sure, but it also speaks to the nature of Hamas using almost every single hospital in the Gaza Strip as a terror uh, command center, uh, in addition to using mosques in schools uh, and also apartment buildings, residential apartment buildings in the Gaza Strip. So Hamas has been hiding and using civilians as cover, uh, as storage for uh, weapons, including tens of thousands of rockets, which is fired at Israel. And Israel's been finding tunnels that lead into these buildings. So Israel really has no choice uh, but to go into hospitals. And the second uh, terror organization decides that they want to use a hospital uh, for terror activities, that building loses its status as protected under international law. I see. And, you know, tensions do also seem to be rising on Israel's northern border. We're seeing the Iranian Bakshiite group, uh, terrorist group, Hezbollah, uh, increasing its rocket fire there. So considering Iran's many proxies and seemingly increasing resources, what is Israel really up against? Well, Hezbollah's fired over 2,300 rockets and drones and anti-tank guided missiles at uh, Israeli positions, military and civilian. Uh, since October 7th, they've killed uh, several uh, Israeli soldiers as well as civilians. So there is a uh, low-lying but very serious conflict already brewing between Israel and Hezbollah uh, on the northern border. The United States is trying to uh, prevent the full outbreak of uh, war similar to what we see in Gaza in southern Lebanon. Israel seems to be giving lip service to uh, that diplomatic process, but Israel has withdrawn uh, tens of thousands of residents from near uh, the Lebanese border and cannot bring them back to live in their homes until that threat is removed. And there is the great sense that uh, Israel may very well launch a ground invasion uh, into uh, southern Lebanon in the coming weeks or months. Now, Israel says that it expects, yeah, up to eight weeks of intense fighting in Gaza, if we look back there, as it tries to clamp down on Hamas forces. How is morale in Israel at the moment? How are people feeling considering the shifting ground here at the moment? Well, Israelis uh, who have sent their loved ones to fight inside Gaza are willing to do what it takes to see complete victory. Israel's lost 230 uh, soldiers since the war has begun, and there are still uh, at least 100 uh, hostages still inside the Gaza Strip. And uh, Israelis uh, are united in their belief that the IDF must do everything to finish the war, make sure that Hamas can no longer commit an atrocity like they did on October 7th and wants to have uh, closure. Uh, on this extended hostage situation. And the International Court of Justice is, has begun assessing disputed areas sought for a Palestinian state. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the prime minister has stated that he will not allow the international community to uh, put forth a uh, diktat, international diktat, and, and 
create a Palestinian state without any negotiations between the parties. Uh, this The whole concept was supposed to be land for peace. Israel doesn't have a lot of land, but it would be willing to give some if the Palestinians could uh, provide peace in return. Uh, you know, since the signing of the Oslo Accords in the 90s, the Palestinians have never indicated that they can deliver Israel peace. And I think the international community has started to recognize that. So instead of uh, pressing the Palestinians to make peace with Israel, now they're pressuring Israel uh, and trying to enforce a Palestinian state uh, on the Jewish state and force Israel to, to give up its land, even though the chances of it getting peace in return uh, faded on October 7th. All right. Alex Trayman, CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief, Chief for the Jewish News Syndicate. Great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Today in The Hague, Palestinian leaders are urging the United Nations' top court to end what they call Israel's occupation of West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Palestinian foreign minister accused Israel of apartheid or institutionalized racial segregation and said Palestinians have an inalienable right to statehood. The hearings held by the International Court of Justice will last six days. Around 50 countries are expected to testify including South Africa, Egypt, Russia, China, and the United States, Israel's biggest ally. Israel did not send a speaker, but it did send a letter where it called the accusations prejudiced. Israeli leaders have long disputed the claim that the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem will meet the status of formal occupation, since they were captured from Jordan and Egypt during the 1967 Six-Day War. And that was, that was met. But the court's opinion is non-binding, but can increase diplomatic pressure on Israel. After the break, Arizona Bill is looking to stem the tide of illegal immigrants on the southern border. We spoke with Mark Lamb, Arizona's county sheriff, to find out more. Flood watch across much of California as another round of heavy rain hits the state, the latest on the winter storms. And the monuments men during World War II aren't all men. Find out more about a new exhibit that highlights the contributions of the female members of the group. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Former President Donald Trump had a busy weekend speaking at a couple of events on Saturday. The appearances came a day after a New York judge issued a ruling fining him and his businesses over $350 million. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the highlights. The former president began a Michigan rally by calling the judge's decision a lawless, unconstitutional atrocity that sets fire to the nation's laws. You talk about democracy, this is a real threat to democracy and restoring fair, equal, and impartial justice in America. We have to have that, because we don't have that now. Trump was speaking to a crowd that overflowed an airport hangar northwest of Detroit. I'm thrilled to be back in the American heartland. This is the heartland. With the proud, hardworking patriots who made this country run. The Republican frontrunner for the presidential nomination has accused Democrats of election interference in the form of multiple civil and criminal cases against him. Earlier in the day, the former president introduced his new Trump-branded sneakers at SneakerCon in Philadelphia. The event bills itself as the greatest sneaker show on earth. 
we have a few young ladies that are up here crying. Look at you with the Trump 2024. Thank you, darling. I love you, too. Wow. A lot of emotion. There's a lot of emotion in this room. The gold high tops with an American flag detail on the back are being sold as the never surrender high tops. Roman Sharp from Philadelphia said he was happy to pay $9,000 in an auction for the sneakers signed by Trump, saying he wasn't going to stop bidding until he won. Mr. President, I'm the one that won your signed sneakers here at SneakerCon in Philadelphia. It was very, very extremely happy to see you, see your face, and you speak to the crowd. Trump supporters at SneakerCon shared their feelings about the former president and the 2024 election. Because America's fed up from all the corruption, the open border, the crime, all the endless wars and, and the money that's going out the doors. Washington is a swamp. Oh, I think Trump wins automatically. I think people are awake now and people realize that there's been a lot of lies in the past. People are seeing the truth now. Man, I just admire that man up there. I just like, ever since I was young, like, he's been my hero. And I just like, I was shaking in my boots over here. I was sweating, I couldn't even believe it, man. I just saw him on stage and I actually burst into tears. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley lashed out at Trump on Sunday while campaigning in South Carolina ahead of the state's primary election. The former governor brought up Trump's legal woes and told those in attendance that chaos follows him. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump with an over 30-point lead against Haley in her home state of South Carolina. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The wife of investor, investor Grant Cordone has started a GoFundMe page to help cover Trump's legal expenses after the New York verdict. It's raised over $438,000 as of this morning. And continuing with the former president, a group of truck drivers are refusing to drive to New York City to show their solidarity with them. They're protesting the verdict in the civil fraud trial. A trucker known as Chicago Ray shared a video Saturday on X saying truckers overwhelmingly support Trump. He said he's spoken to about 10 drivers so far who won't deliver loads to the Big Apple. The ex-user says people are tired of those on the left interfering with the former president and called it election interference. The post has over 7 million views and was reposted by Trump on Truth Social. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley said yesterday it's a mistake that the Republican Party has, in her words, ignored Gen Z voters. Haley made the comment at a Fox News town hall in South Carolina ahead of the state's February 24th primary. And recently a poll came out, this should shock everybody, that 58% of Gen Zers are not planning on voting in this election. And the only reason people don't vote is when they think no one's listening. And that's a problem. Haley also mentioned a statistic she's often noted on the campaign trail, that the GOP has lost seven of the past eight popular votes for president. The town hall's moderator noted that President Biden's campaign has been using TikTok to appeal to Gen Z voters. Haley said Republicans shouldn't use the China-linked app that's banned on federal devices. The candidate went on to cite the dangers behind the app, such as it allows Beijing to access your finances and contacts. Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips announced that his campaign is laying off a substantial number of staff due to financial challenges. However, Phillips did not make any mention of withdrawing from the presidential race. I'm not giving up. I'm going to continue. 
I am on ballots in 43 states. Our country is desperate for change. We can be hopeful again. We can be optimistic again. And we can celebrate America again. But we got to do it together. So if you still believe that change is possible and you still believe that we can do better, please consider investing in our campaign. Phillips thanked his staffers, describing them as amazing people who gave up a lot to join his campaign. In January, billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman declared his endorsement of Phillips. He pledged $1 million to a super PAC that supports the Minnesota congressman. Ackman described Phillips as someone who would make a truly outstanding president of the United States. The announcement comes on the heels of fellow Democratic candidate Marianne Williamson's decision to suspend her campaign earlier this month. Arizona Republicans coming together to fight illegal immigration. To find out more about what's needed at the border, I spoke with Mark Lamb, Sheriff of Pinal County in Arizona. He's also running for U.S. Senate to represent Arizona. Sheriff Lamb, thanks for joining us. Now, recently, all 31 Republican members of the Arizona House of Representatives came out in support of HB 2748. How would this bill strengthen the Arizona border? Well, anything that we can do right now is going to strengthen the Arizona border. Frankly, uh, it's so broken. And anything that the state can do, which is I appreciate the legislature going to battle for us because they realize that this is a broken system and the federal government hasn't been doing their job. So I love that the state is taking some control, giving ourselves more power to be able to do our job and protect our state. Now, other border states like Texas have tried to take matters into their own hands, but have faced legal pushback from the Biden administration. Could something like that happen here if this bill is signed into law? Oh, I'm, I'm almost sure of it. Look, we passed SB 1070, I think, in 2010 or 2011. Immediately, the, uh, the Obama administration challenged it. It went to the, to the Ninth Circuit, and it was overturned and obviously gutted, and we lost that ability to actually have a law that makes it illegal uh, here in the state of Arizona to be in the country illegally. We lost that because of the Ninth Circuit, and I wish that they would have challenged it a long time ago. So I'm glad that Texas is doing this. It's probably going to get challenged, but it's something, a challenge that has been a long time coming. Now, Sheriff, nearly 170 people on the terrorist watch list tried to cross the southern border in the past year and around 24,000 Chinese nationals were also apprehended. Now, this is sparking concern from China hawks about infiltration from the Chinese Communist Party. What threats to public safety could the U.S. face if we don't secure the border? Well, we could, I mean, look, we've got terrorist threats. We've got 37,000 Chinese nationals that came in last year. And, and these are communist, China's a communist country. You can't just leave. It's not like America where you can get on a flight and leave. The government needs to know that you're leaving and they don't let you leave unless they, they want you to leave. So that should be concerning to Americans. And not to mention the fentanyl that comes from China put into the hands of the cartels and has become the leading cause of death in America amongst the ages of 18 to 45. So I don't know what else we would determine a major threat being other than taking American lives, which is what we're seeing with the fentanyl and, and coming directly from China. Yeah, fentanyl is a big issue coming from different countries, China being you know, involved with the precursor chemicals and Mexico as well. Now, I want to move over to um, the remote town of Springville, Arizona, which is about 300 miles from the U.S. border. They're preparing to fight the state of Arizona over the governor's handling of migrants. Tell us about how the state has been handling the flood of illegal immigrants. 
Well, we've been struggling just like every other community across this country. We're the jumping off point. I heard of places in Kansas, 12,000 population, where they now have 1,000 people that are there illegally. This is a major strain on small cities. It's a major strain on big cities. Look at New York. They can't handle what they've gotten. So I stand with Springville, and I, and I think that there, you're going to see a lot more small communities following suit. Yeah. How are other parts of Arizona reacting to this? Well, we're all fed up. We're fed up with what's going on. I think you're going to see that in the voting booth this uh, this fall when uh, we get a chance to vote for who our elected officials will be. It's part of the reason I'm running for the U.S. Senate. I'm tired of seeing what I what's going on, and I can only do so much as a sheriff. And I realize a lot of this fight has to be taken to Washington, D.C., and uh, the people are behind me on that. The people recognize that's where we're going to have to fix these problems, especially as it relates to immigration and especially as it relates to border security. All right, Sheriff Mark Lamb, you've been on the ground at the border, and thank you so much for joining us You're, uh, with Pinal County, Arizona, and also running for U.S. Senate. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. And a police dog in California found approximately 10 pounds of methamphetamine during a traffic stop. A sheriff's deputy pulled the driver over in Petaluma, about an hour north of San Francisco. During the traffic stop, the officer discovered the driver, Angelina Gutierrez, had a warrant out for her arrest. The canine inspected the vehicle for narcotics and was drawn to a box of dog treats inside the vehicle. The boxes carried several packages of methamphetamine. The deputy uncovered more packages hidden in a cat litter box as well. Police seized 10 one-pound bags of methamphetamine in total. The suspect was arrested for felony transportation of a controlled substance. She was later given $0 bail and released. And flood watches are issued across much of the California coast as another round of heavy rain looms. The first round of rain arrived Saturday evening across central California. Santa Barbara County officials say heavy rainfall is forecasted from Sunday evening through Wednesday. Emergency management officials issued evacuation orders for areas at risk of flooding and landslides. The National Weather Service says the stronger storm will also bring gusty winds, lower temperatures, and high elevation snow. Winter storm warnings are in effect for the Sierra, the Southern Cascades, and the Greater Lake Tahoe area. Governor Gavin Newsom has officially activated the State Operations Center. That's to help coordinate a statewide response to the severe weather. During World War II, over 100,000 Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants were forcibly removed from their homes and sent to internment camps in the interior of the U.S. Now a project is compiling their names. This is a monument at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles called the Irichio. It is the first time that the names of Japanese Americans detained in internment camps during World War II have been compiled into one location. There were roughly 125,000 of them. Visitors can honor the former detainees by stamping under names in the book. Yoko Sumida is a 91-year-old survivor of one of the internment camps. And I went in when I was 10, came out at 13, and uh, it was my growing years. I had a good, well, I can't say I had a good time, but it opened my eyes to the world, uh, so to speak, chi my child's world at that time. The, the entire project is really about memorializing all of those people who were impacted by camp. So this is a perfect tie into the Day of Remembrance because what people do when they stamp the book 
is to remember those people who were impacted directly by the, by the concentration camps. The Irit Show is the first part of a three-part installment called the, the Iray National Monument for the World War II Japanese American Incarceration. It's a multifaceted project to address the erasure, the erasure of the identities of Japanese Americans who experienced wartime detainment. Also during World War II, a group known as the Monuments Men set out to find and return millions of works stolen by the Nazis. But despite its name, this group isn't all men. Now the female members of the Monuments Men are getting recognition. 27 women and about 320 men were members of the Allied Army's Monuments, Fine Arts and Archives section during and just after World War II. The Monuments Men and Women Foundation, based in Dallas, honors the group. The foundation updated its name in recent years to recognize the contributions of the female members. The laws of the time prevented women from serving during active combat, and so the women don't enter the picture until the end, until the end of World War II in 1945, and they have an essential role for uh, all that pertains to the restitution efforts. Uh, so many more objects still waiting to be returned to the rightful owners, and uh, we, the Foundation is uh, contacted every day with leads. The National World War II Museum in New Orleans added a permanent exhibit on the monument's officers in November. The gallery includes a recreation of a salt mine where mo monuments officers found stolen art. The U.S. Army recently revived the concept of monuments officers. Now called Heritage and Preservation Officers, the first class graduated in the summer of 2022. And coming up, Senator J.D. Vance remarks that Europeans say Vladimir Putin is an existential threat but don't act like it with their defense spending. Hear why the senator thinks Europe needs to be more self-sufficient. And the European Union launches an investigation into TikTok, the popular video app. What Europeans find concerning in the content aimed at minors? We'll have the details soon when we return. Next, we have some updates from China. A sandstorm sweeping parts of northwest China over the weekend, including cities in the Xinjiang region. In a video posted on social media on Saturday, travelers at a train station in Tumshuk found themselves immersed in a rust-colored landscape. Local officials issued a warning saying visibility in the city was less than 160 feet and banned vehicles from traveling on some roads. Images posted online show cars with broken windows, possibly shattered by strong winds. That's as another part of Xinjiang was hit by a snowstorm. More than 40,000 tourists were stranded over the weekend. A serious threat facing America. FBI Director Christopher Wray is warning that Chinese cyber attacks are already in position to attack the U.S. He also says that Chinese infiltration is reaching something closer to a fever pitch. Let's take a listen. China doesn't partner, it bullies. And it bullies targets at every level, from individuals to businesses and organizations to governments. Speaking at the Munich Cybersecurity Conference Thursday, race at the U.S. is now seeing China's buildup of weapons hidden inside America's critical infrastructure. He noted that they are poised to attack whenever Beijing decides the time is right. 
Ray also mentioned a Chinese hacking operation recently busted by the FBI. Chinese hackers broke into the computer networks of some major U.S. water, energy and transportation systems. And they held on to that access for at least five years. The back door could have allowed them to disrupt U.S. water supplies and energy controls. U.S. officials said they've cut off the Chinese hackers' access to the systems, but warned that the hackers are looking for new ways to get back in. Is massive. China's hacking program is larger than that of every other major nation combined. And that size advantage is only magnified because the PRC uses AI, built in large part on stolen innovation and stolen data, to improve its hacking operations, including to steal yet more AI tech and data. Ray urged Congress to invest more in its cyber capabilities to deter cyber threats from China. He said as of now, Chinese hackers outnumber the FBI's cyber personnel by at least 50 to 1. And in more China news, a real-life thriller for foreign business employees working in China. Imagine doing routine admin work for a U.S. company, only to land in a Chinese detention center facing spy charges. This is Emily Chen's story, raising concerns about the risks in China's business world. More on her case, tune in at 9.30 on Entities China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. And President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are demanding that House Republicans pass the $95 billion foreign aid bill. Biden spoke with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky over the weekend, linking Ukraine's withdrawal from a key city to Congress's inability to act. The White House says the withdrawal was forced by ammunition having to be rationed. Senator Schumer, in a call for action yesterday, called the unclear and sudden death of Putin's political enemy Alexei Navalny an urgent alarm bell. Biden has criticized House lawmakers for taking a two-week break, calling it outrageous. Here's the president yesterday. Look, the Ukrainian people fought so bravely and heroically. They put so much on the line. And the idea that now, if you're running out of ammunition, you walk away, I find it absurd. I find it unethical. I find it just contrary to everything we are as a country. Zelensky hinted at the House recess on Saturday, stating, please remember that dictators do not go on vacation. Senator Schumer stated, Putin is watching, and nothing would make him happier than to see Congress waver in its support for Ukraine. House Speaker Mike Johnson and others in the GOP have, have issues with the bill. They say it lacks provisions for border security amid record-breaking high numbers of illegal crossings. Schumer on X posted the bill is, quote, sitting on Speaker Johnson's desk while Putin waits to see if the U.S. will act. And Senator J.D. Vance is calling on Europe to become more self-sufficient in military matters. Republican from Ohio says the U.S. is focused more on East Asia and can't be expected to cover what he called a disproportionate share of the burden. Entity's Daniel Monaghan has more on that and the perspective of some top European officials on defense spending. Senator Vance made the comments at an international security conference in Germany on Sunday. He says the U.S. is desperately trying to get its European allies to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. Most of them have now met that threshold, but only barely. Uh, so if, if Vladimir Putin is an existential threat to Europe, it doesn't seem like the Europeans are acting like that. 
On the war in Ukraine, Vance has a pessimistic view of the country's ability to effectively change the war's course and fulfill its aims. This is going to end in a negotiated settlement of some, some type. I think American policy and American diplomacy should be trying to bring that about as quickly as possible. Vance says the U.S. doesn't manufacture enough weapons and that critical systems like the Patriot missile and Javelin system are in very short supply. According to the senator, even if the Ukrainian aid package passes the House, which he sees as 50-50, he doesn't believe the money will help due to the ammunition shortages. Over in Lithuania, the country's foreign minister over the weekend called for increased NATO spending. The official warned that former President Trump's comments were a clear signal that Europe must do more, and added that Lithuania has reached nearly 2.8 percent of GDP toward defense spending. We currently have a debate in Lithuania where, whether we should go even beyond that. We're doing our part as well. We're not freeloading. Some European governments had strongly criticized Trump for his warning that as president, he won't defend countries that don't spend enough on their defense against a Russian attack. In Germany, Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said on Saturday that Berlin may need to spend more than the required amount to deter Moscow in the coming years. Effective deterrence is our life insurance. He says Germany doesn't know where it'll find the money yet, but it must. We can discuss about spending for social issues, for education, for digitalization, for infrastructure and whatever else, but without security, without freedom, insecurity, without secure freedom, everything else is nothing. Germany announced last week that it met the 2% NATO alliance target for the first time since the end of the Cold War. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And staying with Europe, here are some short headlines from Germany, France and other countries. The European Union is investigating TikTok. The EU industry chief posted on X that they suspect TikTok is breaching transparency agreements and not upholding obligations to protect minors. Key concerns include addictive design and the algorithm funneling viewers to more extreme content, as well as potentially inadequate age verification and default privacy settings. TikTok's parent company could pay, face fines of up to 6% of global revenue if found guilty of breaching, breaching EU rules. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is seeking a second five-year term. It's one of the most powerful positions in the European Union. This would make her Europe's most prominent politician in over a generation. As President of the Commission, von der Leyen has the power to set the Commission's policy agenda. She determines the legislative proposals that could become EU laws. The former physician and mother of seven has led the EU through COVID-19, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the Israel-Hamas war. She's been a staunch supporter of Israel. Early on, she made climate change a focus, but recently acknowledged the political mood has shifted in Europe. She has appeared to side with farmers in their protests against green regulations. And American Troy Bowling confessed today to charges of murder and rape after allegedly pushing two American women down a ravine in Germany. Prosecutors say the defendant met the two female tourists by chance on a hiking path and lured them off the trail. He allegedly pushed one woman down the ravine for trying to stop the attack and raped the other woman before also pushing her down the ravine. The rape victim died. The surviving woman sustained serious injuries. Prosecutors say they also secured a laptop and cell phones from bowling containing child pornography. If convicted, bowling faces life imprisonment. 
And in France, the Eiffel Tower is closed due to a strike. A sign on the landmark says, we apologize. The tower's workers aren't demanding the usual better pay. Instead, they want Paris to review its finances. The city of Paris is responsible for Eiffel Tower operations. The workers say it's underestimating maintenance costs and overestimating ticket sales. They argue the maintenance may not be done as well as it should be in time for the Olympics, and it's overburdening employees. This is the second strike in two months, and tourists are disappointed. The Eiffel Tower is the most visited site in France. It welcomes over six million tourists every year. We were here in our honeymoon, and the idea was to come to France 15 years after that with our children to visit the same, the exactly same place to show to our kids, and you cannot make it today. So definitely, it's disappointing. Real shame, really, because yeah, say we come just for three days, and we are not going to be able to get out. <laughs> Coming up in college hoops, the NCAA releases their bracket preview nearly a month before the tournament even starts. NTD's Dave Martin with what we need to know. Team USA is getting ready to compete in the 2024 Paris Olympics. We take a look at their training facility north of Paris, far from the hustle and bustle of the French capital. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports to discuss. Now, let's start with the NBA, where last night's All-Star game had a lot of point scoring, but there was also criticism. You know, what's, what, what happened? Yeah, there wasn't much intensity in the game, especially on defense, hence all those points. You know, it makes for a boring game for fans to watch. I mean, if the players aren't going to be into it, you know, the fans aren't going to be either. It didn't seem like Commissioner Adam Silver was very impressed either. Uh, when he congratulated the Eastern Conference for, quote, scoring the most points instead of winning. You know, now others in sports media like Bob Ryan and David Aldridge, they've weighed in on Twitter as well with Ryan calling it, quote, a waste of time. Aldridge wondering why, quote, even minimal defensive effort is beyond this generation of all-stars. Now, this is actually the same issue the NFL, NHL, and even some Major League Baseball has for their all-star games. No one really wants to get injured in an exhibition, so no one's going to go all out in the game. Now, it didn't always used to be like that, though. You know, it used to be a competitive game, so I think they're going to have to put in some incentives out there or something for players if they want a better game uh, going forward. And also, Dave, shifting gears to the college game, March Madness doesn't start for another month, yet the tournament committee has already released the bra their bracket preview ranking the top 16 teams. Why the early preview? You know, I think it's to get us, you know, as in the media, to start talking about it. So in that sense, you could say it actually worked. But to me, it's very early. You know, I mean, they only they do this already for college football, though there's already plenty of interest in that. I mean, only four teams out of 120 make those playoffs, so it's very exclusive. So this does end up being a bit of a talking point for us, but there's still a month to go, like you said. And there was really no surprises in there. I mean, they had Purdue as the number one overall team with UConn number two. The AP poll has them reversed with UConn number one and Purdue number two, although after UConn crushed Marquette Saturday, they, that could actually change. So just, there just wasn't much of a reveal with this. Now, this will be the lone bracket reveal unlike college football, which I think has seven of them. Uh, in any case, there'll be a lot of actual excitement when they do the real NCAA tournament reveal in about a month. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, now, Dave, speaking of college basketball, there was an unusual delay recently with Fairleigh Dickinson in Long Island University. What happened there? Yeah, they, the game was delayed for 17 minutes because Fairleigh Dickinson's players got stuck in an elevator 
uh, going from the court to the locker room right before the game. You know, eventually they found the emergency button. Firefighters arrived after like 10 minutes. And as you can see on this video, it looks like the elevator actually got stuck between floors. Now, fortunately, everyone did get out all right. Kind of looks like a scene of the movie Speed there. Anyway, despite that, they ended up, they actually ended up winning the game in overtime, 84 to 82. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dave. <laughs> Always great to hear your updates. Thank you, yeah. guys. Thank you, Dave. And carrots in health news have much more to offer than just adding a pop of color and sweetness to your favorite dishes. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Carrots are one of the easiest vegetables to get your kids or your picky partner to eat. They're sweet, tasty and have a great texture. However, carrots have a whole lot more than just delicious flavour to offer. Let's look at 5 nutritional benefits starting with number 1, eye health. Carrots get their colour from beta-carotene which is an antioxidant. Beta-carotene can help to prevent against age-related eye diseases like macular degeneration. Number 2, carrots can boost your immunity. Beta-carotene can also help to produce vitamin A in the body. This is vital for boosting your body's defense system, especially during the cold and flu season. Vitamin A helps your body to respond to intruders and regenerate new cells to stay strong. Now we know why carrots are an essential ingredient in everyone's go-to sick meal, chicken soup. Number three, carrots are good for your heart. Research shows that carrots can protect against hypertension and cardiovascular disease, and they could even lower cholesterol. Increasing your vegetable intake in general is associated with improved heart health. This is because yellow, red and orange veggies like carrots all have heart disease fighting powers. Number 4. Carrots can do wonders for your skin Whether you're looking for a fresh glow or are wanting a scrape to heal, carrots are your go-to. Carrots contain carotenoids, which are skin warriors. Retinol, biotin and lycopene are all hidden inside the humble carrot, so keep munching your way to healthier, softer skin. And number five, carrots keep your mind sharp. That's right, carrots can help to boost your memory and prevent cognitive decline. So between boosting your eye, brain and skin health, carrots might just be your fountain of youth. Try to incorporate some carrots or another red, yellow or orange veggie into your daily diet. It's a super easy and delicious way to get a nutrient boost. But don't forget to also eat other colours of the rainbow. And next up, Team USA is ready to compete in the Paris Olympics, but the athletes will actually be staying in a small town north of the city. Paris officials have set up a training facility for the American delegation far from the hustle and bustle of the French capital. We take a closer look with NTD's Andrew Thomas. Some 1,200 athletes and staff will use the Athletica Training Center, about 10 miles north of Paris. The state-of-the-art facility in the town of Uben is near the athletes' village. Um, and it's really close to the athletes' village, so it's really it's convenient for our athletes to go back and forth. Um, and it's in a really nice and quiet neighborhood too, which is great for us because we like to get out of the hustle and bustle and make sure our athletes have no distractions. On top of the Athletica Center, Team USA will be able to use a close-by swimming pool and stadium. The whole facility covers about 35 acres. The Athletica Center costs nearly $30 million to renovate. The accommodations feature automatic massage tables, cryotherapy units, physiotherapy rooms, and about 100 bedrooms. 
we take a lot of pride in making sure that everything's done the way that we want it done. And even down to the little details, like our, our kitchen staff came here and worked with them th with the specifications on their kitchen build out to make sure it had what we need. Security is always a priority when it comes to the U.S. delegation. But Ricky Harris says he believes Team USA will be safe in Uben. We're obviously the, the most prominent and visible uh, delegation, so we always take security very seriously. Um, but yeah, Paris and France are more safe than most American cities, so I think for us um, this is pretty standard. Harris adds that the French hosts have been welcoming and attentive to their needs. Fortunately, we have uh, the cooperation of, of the Paris officials, of French officials, to make sure that we have all the support we need. And the U.S. Embassy has been fantastic out here. They've been excellent partners in making sure that, um, that our athletes and our delegation will, will feel safe and secure here. Athletes will compete at the Paris Olympics from July 26th to August 11th. The Paralympics will begin August 28th and conclude September 8th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Businesses and schools around the country are closed today to honor President's Day. The federal holiday is celebrated on the third Monday of every February. And while it began as a way to honor George Washington's birthday, it now honors all 46 past and current presidents. In 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Uniform Holiday Bill, mandating that President's Day, Memorial Day, and Labor Day happen on a Monday to prevent a midweek shutdown and create a long weekend. Businesses then took advantage and started offering annual President's Day sales. Yeah, right. So better make sure you get in on those sales. Yeah, definitely. And happy President's Day. Happy President's Day. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. And feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.